Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I just spoke with Parks Koval about his new book, China's War Reporters, The Legacy of Resistance Against Japan. This came out in 2015 with Harvard University Press. And it's a fascinating book that looks at both the creation of memories of the war and reporting of the war in the context of wartime itself, and then the re-remembering, the re-memorialization of that material and of those events after the war and well into the contemporary period um, in China and beyond today. So what he does is he takes us into five chapters, and you'll hear a little bit more about this in the interview to come, five chapters that look very closely at journalists and intellectuals who are writing in the war and who are really sort of writing in such a way that is helping them try to mobilize uh, the Chinese population and the populace to resist Japanese incursion. And he also takes us into the consequences of that attempt to mobilize through their writing um, the Chinese people at a time when mass mobilization was not something that the nationalists were interested in and actually pitted um, these writers against um, the nationalists as the communists increasingly started to advocate a kind of mass mobilization strategy. So we see what's happening to these writers and journalists and intellectuals as they're being really kind of torn um, in the context of a, a China that's also being torn apart, not just by the war with Japan, but also by civil war, an impending civil war um, that, that bursts open uh, even after the war is over, the war of resistance is over. And then he brings us into the second part of the book, which is two chapters, and this looks at what happened to the legacy of the writing of these people that we followed so closely in the first part of the book in the context of um, not just Maoist China, but then um, the reforms by Deng Xiaoping, and then into the contemporary world where an increasingly nationalist agenda is not just reshaping the narrative of the war in really interesting ways, but is also generating a very different use of sources and source materials than would have been um, the case earlier. So it's really interesting, both from the perspective of the history of China, but also from the perspective of the historiography, the history of the history writing about China um, of the field. So it's a fascinating book. Um, I hope you have a chance to get your hands on it and read, because there are lots of stories about some really moving and really powerful individuals that are all over the pages of the book that we really just um, touched on a tiny little percentage of. So there's a lot going on that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but we did have a chance to talk about a lot. So um, thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoy and we'll see you soon. I'm here today to talk with Parks Koble about his new book, China's War Reporters. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Park, and thanks for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Great. So, Parks, let's start with some background. Um, can you say a little bit 
about how you came to work on modern China. What brought you to the field and to the modern history of China specifically? Well, uh, I started so long ago. It wasn't really modern China at the time. It seems like I was an undergraduate in the early 1960s,、uh, and this was, of course, the height of the Cold War. And I actually was studying Russian history and language. And、um, right before the start of my senior year,、uh, Yale University hired away the Russian historian where I was going to school, and I was interested in comparative communism. So I.、Um, Switched to Chinese history because that those courses were available, and、uh, I started graduate school and studying Chinese language at the same time. Which today I don't think what happened. I think you'd need to have some Chinese before that. But、um, at that time, of course, Americans, in fact, almost no one could go to China、uh, midway through my undergraduate or graduate year, undergraduate years. The Cultural Revolution started. And in fact, I didn't、uh, get to the mainland until I was already an assistant professor and had published a book on Shanghai before I ever went to the place. So it was a very different time in those days. Wow! So the book that we're talking about today takes us into the context of the Sino-Japanese War of 1937 to 1945 and its aftermath. And the book is separated、um, really functionally into two major parts. The first part of the book, which is chapters one through five, looks closely at writing done, as you put it here, during the war itself by journalists and intellectuals, and it focuses especially on those who were associated with the National Salvation Movement. And we'll talk about what that movement is in a little bit. The second part, which is chapters six and seven, looks at the re-remembering of the war, the way the war and the memory of the war has been understood and re-understood、um, later, later on after the war itself. So, collectively, these chapters argue that,、um, again, in your words, the particular way that war memory has developed has distorted historical scholarship, and it seeks to understand how the unusual way that the legacy of the war has been remembered in China. Has constrained a deeper understanding of the war. So there's a lot going on here. It's a fascinating book, and it's full of all kinds of、um, individual stories of interest, and also broader arguments that I think are very important for not just how we understand history, but how we understand historiography and how we do history. So, given all of that, can you tell us a little bit to kind of get us started about what brought you to the project? How does this fit? Within your immediate research trajectory, and how did you come to decide to write a book-length object about this particular problem? Well, I've been working on、um, the Republican period in China my entire academic career, and earlier I had done a couple of studies. One was、uh, my dissertation、uh, on the Shanghai capitalists in the period up to the start of the war in '37. And their relations with the Chiang Kai-shek government, and then、uh, I did a study called Facing Japan, which、uh, looked at basically the National Salvation Journalists,、uh, who essentially got going in the 1930s, and that looked at the impact of their writing from the Manchurian incident in 1931, when Japan seized Northeast China, up through、uh, the outbreak of the war in 1937, and.、Um, About 1990, I decided it would be an interesting project to compare what happened after the war started by looking at the、uh, experience of the capitalists during the war and the experience of these journalists and other writers and intellectuals. 
And that seemed like a great idea, but after 10 years of work, I finally finished the book on the capitalists. Uh, in fact, I never quite finished it. I only included the industrialists and the commercial uh, capitalists. I didn't get to the bankers uh, very much. Um, and I obviously realized it was going to be two books. And so uh, finally, when I got that other book done on the capitalists and the war period, I turned back to uh, the, um, uh, the journalists and the intellectuals. In the meantime, of course, uh, the whole field changed in terms of historiography and research. Uh, as a graduate student, I got my degree in 1975, PhD, long time ago. Uh, Mao was still alive. Uh, China was still in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, I had not been to China. Nobody was really doing any work in China. Uh, archives weren't open. Chinese scholars, many of them, uh, were still recovering or didn't recover from the Cultural Revolution. Virtually nothing was published, um, really from 66 almost up to Mao's death, practically, not quite that long. Uh, you know, his historical writing and publishing in China just cease. And then we had this explosion of uh, writing and archives open, uh, memoirs, all kinds of stuff came out. In fact, obviously, I could not have done uh, the book on war reporters um, until really fairly recently, meaning the last uh, 15 years when everything became available. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a trajectory that has gone gradually through time, uh, through the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but uh, has certainly changed and evolved as uh, the field um, has changed, particularly in terms of available sources in China. Now let's get into the book itself, and let's start with the first chapter. Now chapter one takes us right into the outbreak of war with Japan. Now Chiang Kai-shek had been following a policy of non-resistance toward Japan, and many newspapers and journals in, at this time period had been calling for the Nanjing government to take a stronger stand, right? To, to change to a policy of active resistance. Many of the writers for those newspapers and journals that are examined in this chapter were associated with something called the National Salvation Movement. So briefly, um, for listeners who may not be deeply engaged in the literature on modern China, what do we need to know about the National Salvation Movement to understand, um, basically to understand where these journalists and writers are coming from in the context of their policies toward, Zhang's policies toward the war? Well, uh, this actually goes back to my book, Facing Japan. Uh, with the Manchurian incident of 1931, uh, I think what I would call public opinion in China was outraged by the Japanese seizure of Northeast China. Uh, and when I say public opinion, this primarily involved urban intellectual students, people who read newspapers and magazines. Uh, it did not involve 85, 90% of the population of China who lived mostly in the countryside and was marginally or totally illiterate. Uh, but it was a very decided, um, very volatile group of individuals. They had been involved in the anti-imperialist movement uh, earlier, but I think the Japanese actions really focused on uh, making Japan the primary target. And I think Chiang Kai-shek, uh, realizing that um, China was in a very weak position, 
trying to avoid fighting the Japanese. He wanted to focus on the communists. Uh, very famously, he had the uh, expression in the 1930s, first internal pacification, or first uh, internal unity, then external uh, resistance. So until he unified China by eliminating the communists, he couldn't fight Japan. And uh, I looked in some detail at the way in which this policy provoked more and more outrage in China. And I think, to a large extent, the Japanese were to blame because uh, they kept uh, pushing the envelope in terms of pressuring China. Uh, Had the Japanese been a little bit more um, moderate, uh, maybe Zhang's policy of appeasement would have been more acceptable. But they kept nibbling away, and it just aggravated uh, public opinion. And this culminated when Chiang Kai-shek was actually kidnapped by his vice commander, uh, the young Marshal Zhang Shuiliang, in uh, December 1936. And he was forced to negotiate with the communists. Uh, Stalin intervened and got uh, uh, the communists, the Chinese communists, to agree to work with uh, Chiang Kai-shek. And uh, this opened the door to the final decision to resist. One thing I did do in the, um, uh, the, the first chapter is point out that that decision was not absolutely obvious in, uh, on July 7, 1937. Uh, I mean, it's now considered the start of the war. But if you go back, there was still a lot of talk of appeasement or a settlement. Uh, and ultimately, I think the Japanese on the ground in China, the Japanese military leaders, some of whom were really rabid right-wing ultranationalists, uh, pushed the Chinese very hard. And I think Zhang had realized that he'd come to the point where he couldn't be a credible national leader without really finally stepping up uh, and standing up to the Japanese. So they sort of evolved into a war situation between July 7, 1937, when the Fighting started at the Marco Polo Bridge near Beijing. And five weeks later, August 13th, when the, the Battle of Shanghai erupted, and that was really the turning point. Uh, there was no really going back after that. By the way, one source that has come available as I was doing that uh, was the final, finally the release of the John Kai-shek Diaries, mm-hmm. which are at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And that provided... Uh, it turns out actually not that great an insight into Zhang's thinking, but you could see day by day how uh, the decision to go to war evolved. Now, many of these writers um, that are part of this movement that you write about here were absolutely elated. They reacted with euphoria when war broke out, and I and the chapter um, brings us into that context because it's not obvious, right, in hindsight, that the outbreak of war would generate feelings of euphoria. Now, as you describe here, um, really probably the primary reason for that is these National Salvation Movement journalists and writers felt that if the Chinese people were united, if they mobilized, then China could take on Japan more effectively. And so this sort of euphoria um, was a result of that. They celebrated the war in their writing in order to boost morale, and you describe that here. And this um, informed, or this euphoria among journalists kind of spread from the Salvationist journals, as you describe here in this chapter, to more of the mainstream press. 
Now, one of the things that's interesting here that you describe in the chapter um, is the way that this helped develop and shape the journalistic profession. You mentioned that there's a kind of de- there's a greater public demand for news of the war. Um, that's a result of this shift and as a result of this euphoria. And this demand elevated war correspondence, as you write here, to the peak of the journalistic profession. So can you um, talk a little bit about that? What does this outbreak of war and the concomitant reaction to it by the um, Salvationist writers do for the professionalization of war reporting in China here? Well, I think that, um, I mean, this was a totally life-changing event for most Chinese on the East Coast. Uh, And as a result, and there was a lot of uncertainty about what was going on. Uh, Radio was still not that widespread. So people were eager for news. And um, so there's this sort of general feeling among intellectuals, including a lot of people who were basically literary writers, that um, you couldn't write novels and short stories at the moment. You had to focus on mobilizing other people for war. So I think there was just a huge uh, shift into trying to um, recover the war, write about the war. But at the same time, as you mentioned, um, it wasn't what we would consider to be objective reporting. Their goal was not really to get the facts out so much as it was to... Uh, encourage and organize and propagandize to get the people of China behind the war effort. And, of course, one of the things that happened is, um, in fact, John Kai-shek was really in many ways right. Uh, China wasn't really able to stand up to Japan. And uh, the after a heroic stand on the East Coast, particularly at Shanghai, uh, they had to retreat. And I think it was quite a shock for a lot of these intellectuals when they left the urban enclaves they had been living in where there's a lot of enthusiasm for the war and excitement. And they got into the countryside and they realized the vast majority of rural Chinese were totally uninformed uh, and had no idea what was going on. Uh, They realized what an enormous task was ahead of them. And um, I think it proved to be a daunting and disillusioning experience after the eight years was up. For most of these writers. Now, in the next chapter, you actually talk about um, this uh, this fact, right? How um, how much some of these reporters were struck by how little the rural Chinese knew about what was happening. And one of the people that you talk about in this context um, turns out to be a really central figure for the story, not just for chapter two, um, but really throughout the whole book. And this is a famed reporter, Fan Changjiang. Right. So he's so important to this story. Could you um, spend a little time introducing him for listeners? What is so important for us to understand about him and the kind of work that he was doing and the influence he was having on his peers during this period? Well, he was a reporter for the Dagong Bao, which was one of China's premier uh, newspapers. I think it was considered not politically captured by any particular party or faction. Um, It had a lot of prestige. I think people considered it um, a very objective uh, newspaper. But he had already achieved a fair amount of fame covering and writing uh, conflicts, uh, war zones, um, and he also combined a kind of uh, coverage of 
events and people with personal interest stories, and he sometimes put himself in the story. So this part travelogue, part uh, conflict, human interest. But he was highly regarded, and when the war broke out, he got right on the front lines. First he went up to Beijing, covered a lot of the fighting there. He was there at the Battle of Shanghai. And um, so he, he wrote some of the best um, material. And actually a lot of the work I did for the book was simply uh, reading his columns, and many of them were available. They had reprinted, uh, and um, and so I, you know, just reading his day-to-day coverage of the war as it unfolded uh, really gave you insight into uh, how not only how he was feeling during the war, but also uh, the style of writing he had, which is very, very lively uh, and engaging. But it also showed the disillusionment he came to realize how disorganized China was and how, um, particularly after the first few weeks, how inept uh, so many things were. One of the harrowing scenes uh, as he's coming back from the front at Shanghai and the Chinese forces kind of falling apart. Uh, He's in a a car, and they're passing by abandoned wounded soldiers who are just beating on the car, very upset, because... Even though they did very well in the early few days of the war, they, um, they were just overwhelmed by the scale of the tragedy and the number of casualties uh, and weren't able to cope in terms of uh, medicine uh, you know, for the front lines. And I think this was profoundly discouraging for him. And then he became angry and eventually turned uh, a few months later to the communists. He was so disillusioned with the nationalists. Uh, response after the initial phase of the war. Right, and you actually have a, um, a quite compelling uh, description of what you just mentioned in this chapter. So at the same time, what's happening here is the Salvationists, right, are trying to mobilize the public behind Chiang Kai-shek. It's like this mobilization um, is what, again, that they are identifying as um, one of the keys to potential victory in this context and to resistance. And at the same time, Chiang Kai-shek's policies are undermining this strategy of mass mobilization. So we see here in this part of the story the beginnings of a rift that's going to really take on greater and greater and greater significance as we move through the book between, on the one hand, KMT, and on the other hand, communist, um, not just ways of dealing with wartime context, um, but also the, you know, the kind of the ramifications of that and dealing with history as well. So at the same time, um, this is happening, um, there's a series of defeats by late summer 1938, and it became difficult for these writers to remain positive about the wartime situation. And part of what's happening, um, you take us here also into the foreign concessions in Shanghai, and we look at um, kind of the ramifications for some of these journalists in Shanghai. So maybe let's speak a little bit to that. Um, So we've got a sense of the broader kind of pessimism that is uh, weighing on these writers here. Some of them are going to Shanghai and writing there. What's happening to journalism and writing in the foreign concessions um, in this period of Japanese aggression in China? Well, it's a very bizarre situation in some ways. Um, The what I would call downtown Shanghai, the international settlement, and the French concession. Um, you know, there was an undeclared war between China and Japan, and um, Japan wasn't at war with, with anyone. And so um, 
the French concession and the international settlement were kind of neutral zones uh, called the isolated island of Gudal. And they're totally surrounded by uh, Japanese held territory. Uh, and this was the financial and intellectual center of China. And so a number of the, a lot of the businessmen who I studied earlier and bankers stayed there, and a lot of the intellectuals stayed there. But it was, um, it was somewhat precarious situation. Uh, not nothing like being in the Japanese occupied zone, but um, there was a little bit of a sort of war of terror between the nationalists and the uh, uh, the Japanese in terms of trying to control uh, public opinion and life in the international settlement. But uh, these people really carry it on. Uh, of course, when the attack on Pearl Harbor happened, uh, the Japanese quickly overran the international settlement, and in turn. Most of the Allied foreigners, the British, Americans, uh, Dutch, and so on. Uh, and at that point, many of the intellectuals who had stayed there uh, either had to go underground or flee. Some of them ended up being collaborators. But um, that Shanghai remained kind of a center of um, independence uh, for four and a half years, from the summer of 1937 up to uh, December of 1941. I mean, it, it, an, uh, a comparative thing would have been if, you know, the Nazis had overrun the eastern seaboard, but somehow other Manhattan had been neutral in New York City. Uh, you know, this urban island in the middle of uh, occupied territory is a very odd uh, environment. Now, so we're remembering here that one of the things that these Salvationist writers, even when times are getting tough and the circumstances um, in which they're writing are getting really, really challenging in ways that you just described and beyond, they're still trying to foster unity. They're still trying to use their writing to kind of generate a sort of mass mobilization. And so one of the consequences of that for shaping the kinds of things that they're writing about and how they're writing about them is something that you take on in Chapter 3. Now, even though, and, and this might be surprising for listeners who maybe know a little bit about the Sino-Japanese War, um, you know, a, a lot of what people know about the Sino-Japanese War, if they don't know much, is they've heard of the rape of Nanjing, right? They've heard of Iris Chang, so they've heard war atrocities. Um, this is something that's uh, really inextricable from how a lot of people understand the Sino-Japanese War. And yet, as you're showing here, in this context, war reporters and fiction writers did not cover war atrocities very much in their wartime writing, and there are important reasons for that. So can you talk about that? Why... Um, what's significant about the fact that they're not covering war atrocities, and why were they not doing that? Why was that a choice? Well, um, as you point out today, if you go to China and go into a bookstore, you know, there are just all kinds of books on Japanese war atrocities. You turn on television, there are all these documentaries or contemporary films filled with them. Uh, but at the time... Um, and there, were, there was some, I mean, there was not total awareness of things like the rape of Nanjing, but there was quite a bit. But I think the fear was that they didn't want Chinese to appear completely victims of the Japanese. They wanted to depict the Chinese united and fighting back. So when you do have some coverage, for example, from Nanjing, they talk about how the people are united, that uh, the... Um, that the actions of the Japanese have brought the Chinese people together determined more than ever. So they always put a spin on their stories uh, that emphasizes unity and resistance uh, because they don't want to do anything that would undermine the morale 
uh, or undercut the uh, unity of the Chinese people. And it goes back to this point that they're not thinking so much about factual reporting as such, but about mobilizing and unifying the people in what is turning into a very discouraging uh, set of circumstances for them. So how then do we um, understand how what you just mentioned plays out in terms of their coverage of aerial bombing? I mean, you show in this chapter they're actually covering aerial bombing quite intensively. So what was different about that particular problem um, that occasioned a very different kind of coverage among these war, reporti- war reporters and writers? Well, I think as I point out in the book, there are several factors. One was um, aerial bombing of civilians was still very, very new. Uh, this is just immediately after some of the bombing in the Spanish Civil War had caused international outrage. And uh, I think there was an eye toward the global international community uh, that uh, coverage of these atrocities was really um, the use of aerial bombing of civilians uh, was something that they thought would bring international support and sympathy uh, for uh, China. And so they really played it up uh, in their global propaganda efforts, which were undertaken by the government as well. Uh, at the same time, I think it was such a new and novel thing that uh, they wanted to inform individuals about uh, this and what it meant. And in some ways, they didn't do a very good job. As I point out, uh, in May of 1939, uh, the Japanese launched massive air attacks on Chongqing, or Chongqing as it's called then in English, uh, the wartime capital after they moved into the interior. And the war had been going on for two years, but they just had not prepared the people, and a lot of people died in the first couple of air raids. So I think the combination of the interest in international sympathy and support, but also just the novelty of uh, this type of action was something that led to a a very different treatment of aerial bombing from some of the other uh, types of atrocities that were occurring in the war. And And also for listeners who are particularly interested in this phenomenon of aerial bombing and the way it was covered, the chapter looks... Um, very closely also at the fact that some of the earliest and most publicized incidents of bombing of civilians were actually done by the Chinese, right, to their own people by mistake. And so there's some really interesting stuff going on in terms of what's happening and also how it's being written about in the press. Um, and, And so there's a lot of interesting stuff here on bombing and its consequences. For listeners who are particularly interested in that, they should check chapter three out especially closely. So as we move to chapter four, we move to movement and to wartime movement specifically. This chapter looks very closely at everyday experiences of wartime mobility um, in this period. So wartime writers weren't just writing about mobility, as you describe here, um, as an important aspect of the war, but they're also experiencing it themselves. And they covered a wide range of kinds of experiences of mobility. So for some, as you describe here, flight from fighting um, was something that was very scary, it was dangerous, it brought uncertainty. For others, travel from occupied China to free China, which is the area controlled um, by Jiang's Chongqing government, was expensive and it was complicated, but as you put it here, it was kind of fairly routine. For others, for many businessmen um, specifically, 
war was a kind of opportunity for profit. So for you, I think I'm going to hit the ball back to you on this one. For you, what is um, what are perhaps some of the most interesting and important aspects of war mobility in this period in terms of what you're arguing in this chapter? What for you is most interesting and exciting about mobility as you're describing it here? Well, what I actually, I guess what I would say is one of the things I was trying to get at in this chapter, and maybe the whole book, was that this is a war that lasted eight years, and um, it's an incredibly varied experience, both by time and place. Um, different phases of the war are very different, and they're different in different parts of China. So you can't just say there's a war experience, and I think that describes all of China. Once the um, October 1938, the big city of Wuhan, or the Wuhan cities in central China, and Guangzhou or Canton uh, in the south fell, the war entered a less, before that there had been very large positional battles uh, on the scale of World War I. And then after that, there's still a lot of fighting, but it tends to be more localized. And so in some ways, a lot of the battle lines stabilize. So from one part of the war to another, conditions can vary a great deal. And they, they will change again. The Japanese launch a massive offensive late in the war, the Ichigo offensive, and that sets up another wave of refugees. So it's very, very hard to just put your finger on uh, a one-paragraph description of what World War II was like. And that's what you often get in textbooks. Uh, so I try to give a far more nuanced picture complex picture of what war was like, and um, also kind of show that um, patriotism uh, was not an absolutely universal value, that a lot of Chinese didn't strongly identify with a nation state at this time, and uh, they were a lot more um, willing to accept or adjust to uh, local uh, public government set up by the Japanese. Thank you. So the war um, is in full bloom right now. And as the war goes on, the United Front um, that had sort of been tenuously hanging on between the KMT and the CCP began to unravel. And as the war went on and this unraveling increased and continued, the Salvationist writers and intellectuals that we've been talking about were increasingly disheartened. And they were disheartened in part by this lack of internal Chinese unity, as you describe here in the chapter. Now, you give us some really fascinating examples of the ways that this is playing out for individuals, right? And that's one of the beautiful things about the book, is this becomes a story that maybe moves um, listeners and readers from what they might have come to the book understanding, which is that you know there's something, there's some unitary idea of China, Right, that we understand here, and it moves us toward a position where we're able to more appreciate difference and nuance within this large overarching category of China um, that really brings the story alive and, and, and makes, I think, the reader able to empathize a lot more with the varieties of experiences of this war on the ground, as you've just described, I think, so nicely in describing the issue of mobility. So one of the people um, whose experiences you bring us into is a way of Um, highlighting and giving um, flesh to the bones of this story of the rift between the nationalists and the communists is someone called Zhou Taofen. 
Now, Zhou Taofen is a key leader of the National Salvation Movement, and he was a prominent 1930s journalist. And his story in this context is quite moving and quite um, powerful. So can you, maybe for listeners who don't know much about this context, um, talk a little bit about Zhou. What's important for us to understand about his experience in this context um, to inform how we understand this rift between the KMT and the CCP? Well, Zhou was uh, an individual journalist uh, who I would really describe maybe as one of the most popular journalists uh, in China in the 1930s and in the 40s. And um, in the 30s, he had, um, I think he was considered kind of a a leftist, and uh, frequently his uh, journals would be shut down. But in general, some of his journals were among the most popular uh, particularly with young urban people in China. And he pioneered things like uh, writing to the editor about different things and uh, advice columns and things of that type. Uh, and he was increasingly anti-Japanese and wanted China to resist. And he was one of the uh, so-called seven gentlemen, seven individuals who were arrested by Chiang Kai-shek in 1936 uh, because they called for resistance to Japan. And the Zhang, as part of the appeasement policy, had agreed to uh, curb any Japanese public opinion in China. Uh, but after the war started, he was very much into the United Front. He supported Zhang, and uh, he wrote, uh, had a journal called uh, The War of Resistance. And uh, he published a column. It came out every three days. And uh, uh, he was really one of the more important writers in terms of developing a lot of these ideas. And he followed the, uh, the nationalist armies to Wuhan and eventually to Chongqing. But as um, the United Front began to unravel, uh, John began to uh, really rein in his book. He had a chain of bookstores called Chonghua Life Bookstores. And uh, those were gradually uh, curtailed. And uh, when the um, New Fourth Army incident occurred in January 1941, which is actually a, a battle between the communist and nationalist forces, uh, the, it became clear John was getting ready to arrest a number of the leftist writers. And uh, so both Zhou so and Fan and many other people decided they had to get out of nationalist free China. And um, they actually, most of them at that time, Hong Kong was still neutral territory. And so a lot of them um, fled to Hong Kong in early 1941. Well, of course, they got there. They just set up shop. It's neutral territory. And, and a few months later, December 41, uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and they also obviously attacked Great Britain. And Hong Kong is quickly overrun. So they had to flee again. So this time, uh, Zhou had to flee and eventually ended up in the communist base areas. And then he developed cancer and had to go to uh, occupied Shanghai. He did so uh, secretly, surreptitiously, made a couple of trips there. Unfortunately, of course, uh, little could be done. And he ended up dying late in the war and occupied um, Shanghai in a hospital using an assumed name. Uh, but he had a really kind of a tragic story, but he was one of the most passionate and devoted of these writers. And I probably read all of his columns from 1930 up to uh, really 44. Uh, and uh, he was a very, very lively and engaging writer. 
he became very bitter at the end uh, about the Chiang Kai-shek government. But um, in the first part of the war, he really was gung-ho, support John, support the United Front. And I think he just became more and more disillusioned as the communists and nationalists uh, became more divided and the United Front really collapsed. Right. And in fact, um, you just use the word bitter and uh, you describe what's happening here in terms of, or at least in the eyes and in the writing of the journalists and writers that were following here as a bitter victory, right? Even after the Japanese surrender was announced and the war ostensibly was coming to an end, um, a lot of these writers and journalists realized that the end of the war um, was also kind of the beginning of an impending civil war in China. And so on the one hand, victory. On the other hand, um, this is a very bitter victory, as you're describing it here in this chapter. Now, as we move from Chapter 5 to Chapter 6, this is an important turning point because even though this is the end of the war, it's certainly not the end of the story. And this takes us from Part 1 of the book to effectively Part 2 of the book. This Chapter 6 is called Legacies of War, Forgetting and a New Remembering. And this idea of a new remembering of the war um, and the consequences of it is very much at the heart of what's happening here. Now, when the war ended in August 1945, China's writers were physically divided into three areas, as you describe here. Um, Some were in Chiang Kai-shek's Free China, some were in communist base areas under Mao, and some were in occupied areas under Japanese-supported puppet regimes. In the immediate aftermath of the war, the writers in the communist camp seemed to end up on the winning side, but there were important consequences um, for them as well. So many writers associated with the salvation movement that we've been talking about who had spent any time in KMT-controlled China during the war eventually found trouble in communist areas. So can you talk about that um, a little bit? So what's happening for these writers who find themselves in communist areas, and what are the consequences that they're experiencing for previous involvement um, with the KMT? Well, I, as I think I point out in the book, the, um, there's really a move in both camps. Here I'm just referring to the, the Kuomintang and the communists to really crack down on any variety of opinion. Uh, there's a purge of leftists and liberals in John's camp, and the Zianyi, uh, the rectification campaign in Yan'an uh, in the war period when they really cracked down. And so I think the, the leftist writers who had to flee from John Kai-shek ended up in the communist base areas, and they suddenly find the climate of opinion very, very, um, very tight. Uh, they're not really able to express uh, any freely any kind of um, variety of thought at all. And, and so even though a lot of these guys like Fun and, and very famous journalists, and many of them in the immediate aftermath of the establishment of the People's Republic have prestigious jobs. Generally speaking, they don't really, they aren't really major journalists from this point on. There's no room in uh, New China for the kind of writer that Fon or So had been, uh, who you know had a, a much wider range of approaches to writing. They just aren't willing to write the party line and propaganda. And so they they do things, but they don't necessarily uh, continue as major journalists. Uh, Some of those uh, people I covered during the war 
uh, don't make it through the anti-rights campaign of the late 50s. They become uh, victimized, they are targeted, uh, and almost none of them get through the Cultural Revolution. Uh, with one or two exceptions, some of the most important, like Fon, committed suicide, Qin Zhenghua, and then another major writer would so uh, committed suicide. Uh, others who didn't commit suicide uh, spent many years in exile um, and are engaged in public affairs. Uh, and I think in the Cultural Revolution, anyone who had been in the so-called white areas was considered suspect. Uh, the Red Guards felt that any 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 activity in Guangdong, China, uh, or any connection with the Allied Powers uh, made you uh, an enemy of the people. And that was a very, very tough time for most intellectuals in China, uh, but certainly for the people that I covered in the section on the war. Now, the legacy of the writers that were associated with this National Salvation Movement has largely disappeared from public memory, as you write about here in Chapter 6. Can you talk about why that is? Um, how and why did the legacy of these people who you've shown throughout the book were so important um, for covering and responding to what was going on in the war, why is that legacy not um, a prominent feature, uh, or why did it disappear, really, from public memory for so long? Well, after the 1949 revolution, uh, Mao, of course, uh, basically, they control public um, intellectual activity. And the approach then was to glorify the revolution, to glorify Mao, the role of the Communist Party. And the writing of these war reporters, especially their early writing uh, during the United Front period, glorified the leadership of Chiang Kai-shek and uh, his uh, heroic leadership at the Battle of Shanghai and called for national unity. And none of that really fit in with the um, uh, approach taken in the Maoist period. Uh, after all, John had gone over to Taiwan. He was recognized by the United States uh, and uh, the EL, the United Nations seat for China. And so anything that in any way praised the nationalists was considered anathema. The, the emphasis was on the revolution, not the war. And so the war took a back seat. When it was mentioned, one of the things I do in that chapter is quote the Every anniversary, when they would publish uh, a statement, they would talk about you know why the war was won. They would only mention uh, Mao, the New Fourth Army, the Eighth Crown Army, the leadership of the Communist Party. Uh, in the fifties, they talked about the leadership of the Soviet Union. Uh, it was mentioned in the defeat of Japan. Of course, the Soviet Union ended the war against Japan on August eighth, nineteen forty-five, two days after uh, they, we dropped the bomb, atomic bomb on Hiroshima. So they got in, obviously, very late. But then in the 60s, with the break with the Soviet Union, they virtually wrote the Soviet Union out of the war. And so it's just now the communists. So um, the, the, the writing these individuals had done, in fact, the whole memory of the war has, um, or was at that point, um, virtually non-existent in China. It was all about the revolution and not at all about uh, the... Um, uh, the war of resistance against Japan. Mm-hmm. Now, you show in this chapter that in the late '80s there begun, uh, or there began to be printed, new histories 
of battles, right, in the late 80s. Um, and you describe this kind of flowering of material on the war that included reprinting of collected works of some writers and journalists, um, reprinting of war diaries, uh, material in school textbooks that treated the war in a new way, and also uh, a lot of attention in TV and in movies, sort of in television shows and in films to the war. Why has the war emerged as such a ubiquitous topic in popular media in today's China? You, you describe this in detail in the chapter, but for listeners, can you talk a little bit about um, how and why that's become so popular today, um, given what you, we've just described um, prior to you know, the late 80s? Well, actually, one of the things I mentioned in acknowledgments is that sometimes being old can be a benefit when you're a history professor, because as I mentioned earlier, I got my degree, PhD, in 75, and Mao is still alive, and most of the writers that I mentioned in, in the book that survived 49 were still around, uh, had uh, been purged or died in the Cultural Revolution and had not been rehabilitated. And so as I was going through my academic career, I saw this process unfold. And I think what happened was in New China with the reforms, uh, the appeal of Marxist-Leninist ideology faded, uh, and the contrast between Maoist ideology and the reality of today's China uh, was is quite stark. And uh, particularly after the 1989 um, demonstrations at the crackdown, uh, I think the government uh, looked to nationalism as a potential way to unify the Chinese people and emphasized that in the past China had been victimized, it had been disunited, and that uh, the Chinese people had to stand up and be united behind the government and the Communist Party uh, for China to take its place in the modern world. And the anti-Japanese War of Resistance became uh, a key event and another, and I'm borrowing from Ron Emitter here, is that uh, the war resistance was a horrendous tragedy for China, but it's conveniently one of the few modern tragedies that you can blame on farms. Because if you look at the Cultural Revolution or you look at the great uh, three years of hardship and the famine associated with the Great Leap Forward and its aftermath, those were Chinese-made, or the earlier civil wars. But the Japanese invasion... It's, you've got a foreign scapegoat. And so uh, remembering the war became kind of a, uh, almost an industry in China with enormous emphasis on uh, television and newspapers. And this meant that it now was okay to praise Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists within limits. Uh, you could talk about the heroic stand at Shanghai. You could talk about China being one of the big four powers in World War II. Uh, John's uh, attending the Cairo conference with Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill. Uh, this suddenly became acceptable, and uh, all of a sudden, these things that had been invisible in China suddenly uh, reappeared. Uh, and, I, and again, as I watched this over the years, uh, I remember as a grad student, I read uh, the Chiang Kai-shek, The People's Enemy by Chen Da, who himself was purged in the Cultural Revolution. That was the main treatment of John. He was the people's enemy. And now, all of a sudden, uh, you began to have biographies of some of his generals and uh, studies of the battles, things that had not ever been mentioned in China 
in the Maoist period suddenly, and new museums, they're covered uh, uh, in great detail uh, in a number of writings by different scholars. Uh, you know, the war atrocity museums uh, in Nanjing and uh, elsewhere have been built, expanded, re-expanded. And then I have one section, as you mentioned, on uh, school textbooks, which have added more and more coverage of the war, and especially Japanese atrocities. Now, this is you just mentioned something that's um, a really, really important focus of Chapter 7, and that is the increasing attentiveness to and attention to war atrocities in this new remembering, as you put it, um, of the war. Now, this is an important distinction, as listeners will hopefully remember from um, earlier in our conversation, because earlier on, and certainly in Maoist China, it was resistance and not victimization that was the dominant narrative. But this, um, in the wake of this new nationalism, right, which sort of is a narrative, as you describe it in this chapter, very much of victimization at the hands of imperialists of all sorts in the 19th and 20th centuries, um, there's increasing attention to narrativizing the war in terms of war atrocities. And you describe um, a, a kind of numbers game, right, that characterizes the literature on this and that uh, characterizes the literature that does this insofar as one of the goals seems to be to you know, maximize the number of um, people killed in these um, horrible events. So there's this numbers game as well. Now, one of the interesting things happening in this chapter as you're describing this is, um, at least for a historian, right, who cares a lot about documents and sources, and, and I'm definitely um, that kind of historian, you talk about the different kinds of sources, primary sources and historical materials that are being used to support this new remembering and this new narrative. So let's talk a little bit about that as we kind of come to um, or come toward the conclusion of our conversation. What have been some of the most important sources for this new remembering of history? And um, for you, uh, what's most striking about these sources? Well, there's no question that the opening of archives in China uh, has been really vital. Uh, and, but the key thing in China is they've just been publishing them, so many of these materials, uh, records from war uh, crimes trials, things that uh, were you know, lying in a drawer somewhere or were obscure, are really being published. And uh, some memoir literature, although I deal with how problematic some of that is, but a lot of it is just reprinting uh, the works of these journalists. Uh, they um, had not been available publicly, but people like Fonda's entire collective works have been reprinted, and um, uh, biographies and stories of his life. So you get more and more of this uh, material, but you know there are literally hundreds of volumes of uh, archival documentary sources on the rape of Nanjing that had been published in China. And, and so there's just a huge effort to get this material out there. Now, one of the things, though, that you mentioned that's so interesting here is that, you know, we've talked about the fact that a lot of these war reporters were not mentioning atrocities, right? I mean, so that's one of the things that becomes interesting here. Um, the nature of the kind of documentary evidence that was coming out of the wartime period, as we've just learned about it in the first part of the book, was not emphasizing or sometimes not really mentioning a lot of the aspects of the war that have become so central to this re-remembering. So in the wake of that, 
Um, you talk a little bit about the importance of kind of Western reports, right, if, if I can use the big W word, um, of the war and other kinds of sources that are being used um, to kind of buttress and to contextualize these, um, the writings of these war reporters. So what are some of the most important of those kinds of sources that have allowed this very different kind of historiographical emphasis than we saw um, really in a lot of the writing of these Salvationist writers? Well, um, the Salvationist, I mean, I didn't want to imply they didn't necessarily know about the atrocities, but I think the key was they, they wanted to project the image of resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ironic that today when China's the second largest economy in the world and you know has people in space and is a, a power, now they can feel, they can talk about atrocities and um, you know, this is when they highlight this aspect of the war. But um, I, don't, I actually think most of the Western records were there all along. A lot of it was evidence uh, admitted into the Tokyo war crimes trials. Uh, a lot of it, like the, the diary of the so-called good Nazi that Iris Chung used, had been around. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the interest in the China war in the West was somewhat limited. It had been eclipsed by the revolution. And so um, it's really the rediscovery of this by Chinese and its translation into Chinese of so many of the the, uh, diaries and writings of missionaries and diplomats uh, was in English or German, and now they've published this in Chinese, and it's become far more widely available there. Thank you so much, Parks. Now, uh, the last question that I'll ask you before we come to our conclusion, we're almost out of time. Um, One of the things that you talk about in this Chapter 7 is um, something that we've kind of briefly mentioned or briefly hinted at earlier in our conversation, but that you pay special attention to um, in terms of understanding how it's shaped wartime memory and the historiography of the war. And this is the Cultural Revolution. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you take to be some of the most important aspects of the Cultural Revolution in terms of war memory and, and in terms of shaping, perhaps, um, the nature of some of the memoirs and other writings about the war that have become increasingly used um, in this new uh, remembering? Well, most of the journalists that were still around and prominent and the National Salvation Intellectuals in the Cultural Revolution ended up being victims. And uh, some of them did not survive, like Fon, they committed suicide. But many of them had protégés and people. And when there's a whole literature in China of people who are rehabilitated, and uh, it tends to have a certain formula. But in their case, the formula also is... um, a rediscovery of their role in the war uh, so that, you know, they will have celebrations on the 10th or 15th anniversary of someone's death, like fun, and there'll be a memorial volume and many of his comrades will give testimonials. And uh, this is when a lot of their uh, writing is republished and a lot of discussion about uh, the honorable role they had in the war suddenly uh, has reemerged. I used a lot of that material uh, in writing this book. So, Parks, thank you so much for taking us into so many aspects of the book. Now, of course, there are a ton of things, a ton of people and stories and arguments that we didn't have a chance to get to, right? It's a very, very rich book, and we just barely scratched the surface. 
But given that, is there anything you'd like to mention for listeners um, that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Uh, no, I think the only thing I would mention, I, I like the photographs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able, I took one myself of a bust of fun, but I, I was able to use a, a very, very good collection at the National Geographical Society Library at the University of uh, Wisconsin at Milwaukee and uh, a wartime reporter who took some a brother Graham, but um, really, it, it, uh, I think it really conveys what it would have been like to have been in Shanghai in particular at that time. And now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What are you currently working on? Well, uh, I got involved in a couple of conferences in Shanghai at Fudan University, uh, organized between the Hoover Institution and uh, Fudan University, looking at the role of the Song family. And earlier, I'd done a lot of work on uh, business and finance. And uh, so I've gone to two conferences there where I've given papers on uh, the wartime and the Civil War, looking at the period from uh, 45 to 49, in terms of hyperinflation, which is an uh, enormously devastating problem, especially in the Civil War, and looking in particularly at the role of T.D. Song, who was John Kai-shek's brother-in-law and longtime minister of finance, and uh, his other brother-in-law, Madame John Kai-shek's brother-in-law, H.H. H. Kong, Kong Shan-shi. And uh, the T.D. Song papers are open at the Hoover Institution. A lot of them have now been published by Hoover and Fudan. And uh, they're now just getting the H.H. Uh, H. Kong papers open. And I made a trip out there in May, and so I'm looking forward to a project that will go back to looking at finance and uh, inflation and its social consequences, probably looking at the period 1944 to 1949. And uh, whether it's a book or just a couple of articles, I don't know, but I'm right now kind of projecting a book project. Well, best of luck with that work, and thank you again for making the time. It's really been a pleasure. Well, thanks. I enjoy talking to you. You have been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.